Support for this podcast and the following message come from PwC. Pairing the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations, fuel innovation, and detect risks. Human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation from PwC. Hey, it's Manoush here. One quick thing before we start the show. This has been a difficult year for everyone. But one of the bright spots for me and the team has been bringing you big ideas every week to help you think and reflect and get inspired. And we are so excited to explore tons of new stories and ideas with you in 2021. But this is the time of year where we need to ask you for your help. Here at NPR, we're launching our annual end-of-year fundraising campaign. And the best way to support the TED Radio Hour is to donate to your local public radio station. I, for example, used to work at WNYC, New York Public Radio. So when you listen to this episode, I hope you'll just take a second to reflect on what the show has meant to you this year. And if it has meant something, please go to donate.npr.org slash TEDradio to support your local station. And thank you so much. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. Our job now is to dream big. Delivered at TED conferences. To bring about the future we want to see. Around the world. To understand who we are. From those talks, we bring you speakers and ideas that will surprise you. You just don't know what you're going to find. Challenge you. We truly have to ask ourselves, like, why is it noteworthy? And even change you. I literally feel like I'm a different person. Yes. (laughs) Do you feel that way? Ideas worth spreading. From TED and NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and we all know how tough this year has been. It's kind of a relief that 2020 is finally coming to an end. But looking back, we can also think of this year as a time of accelerated learning. The development of a vaccine in record time, of course. But even before that, we all had to wrap our heads around so many new concepts. And we needed the right people to help us make sense of it all. Experts on chapters in history that we'd never paid much attention to. Researchers whose scientific side stories suddenly had huge relevance. And artists whose not-so-obvious ideas put our strange year into context. And so that's what we're sharing today. The stories and interviews from this past year that brought us clarity. A little 2020 hindsight on the year 2020 starting with some time travel and historic parallels. In the spring, we all learned about the previous century's pandemic, the 1918 Spanish flu. But did we pay enough attention to the details in this cautionary tale? You be the judge. Yes, so, I mean, just to give you a tiny bit of perspective, uh, around 1818 million people are thought to have died in the First World War. And the numbers we work with today, though they are uncertain, are between 50 and 100 million dead for the Spanish flu. Which means that the Spanish flu probably killed more than either World War and possibly more than both of them put together. This is Laura Spinney. I am a science journalist, also a novelist and a writer, and I wrote a book called Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. And just like today with COVID-19, New York City was hit hard by the Spanish flu. What was New York like in 1918? 
So New York in 1918 was quite a modern city. It was quite atomized. Um, it's the peak of the pandemic. People are dying left, right and center. And the city is papered with advice on how to prevent and treat influenza. Things like hand washing, masks, quarantine and self-isolation. What we call social distancing, you know, the collective term for all those measures that keep the sick and the healthy apart and so slow the spread of the disease. Public gatherings were discouraged. Some were restricted. Sounds familiar, right? But that didn't always stop people from going out. Like on October 20th, 1918, when Charlie Chaplin's new film was released. For some New Yorkers, the opening night ticket was too hot to resist. Oh, Charlie Chaplin was so hot. And he made this film called Shoulder Arms in which uh, a tramp kidnaps the Kaiser. Uh, good stirring stuff for wartime. And it uh, premiered at the peak of the pandemic in New York City. A bunch of people crowded together in a movie theater during a pandemic. Not the best idea. And yet... Harold Edel, who was the manager of that cinema... Uh, I think he wrote in a newsletter um, something like uh, he just congratulated people for turning out in such impressive numbers uh, to watch the film. We think it a most wonderful appreciation of shoulder arms that people should veritably take their lives in their hands to see it. So crowds of people came out to see the film. And Harold, the cinema manager? By the time his words were published, he himself had died of the Spanish flu. Wait a minute. So despite the fact that the flu was ravaging New York City at the time, people thought, you know what? Those of us who are healthy, we want to go see Charlie Chaplin. He's the hottest thing out there. Um, Let's get on with our lives and go to the movies. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, maybe you were seeing a little bit of the uh, of the of the mentality we're seeing today where people are finding it hard to tolerate um, self-isolation over time. Maybe it's okay at the beginning, but sustaining it gets hard. Uh, I mean, to be fair, the places of entertainment had not actually been closed. There were restrictions on attendance at them, for example. Oh, there were? Yeah, children weren't allowed to go, and I think smoking was banned. But, you know, the general tone was uh, don't gather in crowds. It was a bit like the British attitude at the moment. You know, we advise you not to. I mean, it's so interesting to think of how people responded in 1918, how people are responding now. I mean, it depends on what country you live in, what state you live in here in the United States. But I guess I wonder, like, how do you look at this year, this moment, and put it into context um, with how pandemics have played out in the past? I mean, I think this is the thing, right, that... Um, We find ourselves, I mean, this is a different world, this is a different germ, this is a different disease, but now while I'm living through it, what I'm feeling is something very ancient about this. There's something ancient about the way we react, about the way we behave well, behave badly. It doesn't feel like it's changed since Greek times, since the Greeks described hysteria in these kinds of situations and good behavior in these kinds of situations. It all feels very ancient. The way you put it, it sounds like it's all eerily familiar to you. And and just going back to 1918 and the Spanish flu, one of the things I found so fascinating was these multiple waves to the virus. Can you walk us through them? So the pandemic is generally considered to have struck in three waves. It kind of depended where you were in the world. Um, but in general, there was a kind of uh, initial 
mild wave in the early months of 1918, which wasn't that different from seasonal flu. Um, That went away in the sort of late spring, early summer of 1918. And then the second wave kind of emerged in the last weeks of August of the same year. And that was by far the most vicious wave when most of the deaths took place, receded towards the end of 1918. And then there was what's usually considered a third wave uh, in the early months of 1919 that was uh, intermediate in severity between the other two. I mean, hearing that is terrifying. We know it's a different time. We know it's a different virus right now. But the thought of going through multiple waves of this is just kind of awful. Yeah, absolutely. And so right now, though, we are seeing that older people seem to be particularly at risk. Were there groups in 1918 who were more vulnerable than others? In most of the world, overall, the most vulnerable age group were adults aged 20 to 40, um, which is unusual for flu. But it was one of the reasons why that pandemic was so devastating, because it basically purged communities of their breadwinners, of their pillars, their parents, you know, fathers and mothers uh, at a time when there was no real safety net socially in terms of social welfare. And this to me is why it's so fascinating because it's a pandemic is not just a biological thing, it's social as well. So how did societies pull themselves back together again after the Spanish flu finally died down in the summer of 1919? So, I mean, they were pretty devastated. Of course, they also had to rebuild after the war in many parts of the world. It was, you know, it was a humanity-wide trauma. Um, But at the population level, what's really interesting is that humanity quickly bounces back. So you see there's a big dent in the demographic profile of the people who died at that time. Mm. Um, But in the 1920s, there was a baby boom. And one of the reasons for that boom, we think is that the Spanish flu basically purged the world of people who were already sick with other diseases, notably tuberculosis. Hmm. And so what it left behind was a smaller but healthier population. Wow. Darwinian. Yeah, totally. So humanity replenishes itself, but at the cost of huge amounts of individual suffering, of course. Can we talk about the people's mental health after the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned the trauma. Yeah. This sense of uncertainty, long, like slow moving uncertainty is something that I have never experienced in my lifetime. And I can only imagine um, that sort of the way that society functioned after the 1918 pandemic with the flu, I mean, it must have changed the way people thought of being human in the world. So there's quite good um, evidence to suggest that there was a kind of wave of depression that went over the world after the pandemic. Hmm. I think a lot of people, and not just military uh, civilians as well, were left with a similar kind of post-traumatic stress disorder by this pandemic. I think there was also a sense of sort of survivor's guilt because it was so random. Mm. You know, some died, some didn't. Um, But at the same time, of course, people were just sort of uh, in a state of shock after the war. I mean, it must have been an extremely strange time. So in your book, you bring up this idea of collective memory, um, which refers to how we as a society remember our past and learn lessons from defining moments like the Spanish flu or now with COVID-19. 
And it sounds as though the 1918 flu was not much of a cautionary tale for the generations that followed. The memory of it has been very flimsy, in fact. Yeah. Whereas I have heard people talk about World War II all the time. Like, we can't let that happen again. We have to protect ourselves. Never let it get to that point. Yeah, we do say that a lot. I mean, I tend to be quite cynical about that. I think that uh, just remembering these things, unfortunately, doesn't stop us doing them again. Mm. Um, So I was speaking the other day to Jonathan Quick, public health expert who wrote a book called The End of Epidemics. And he says, well, when it comes to pandemics, we just are in this cycle of... um, of uh, panic and complacency. We'll see if this one puts an end to that. I I personally um, doubt it, but uh, it remains to be seen. We panic when it happens and then we forget as soon as it's gone um, and uh, don't do all the things which, for example, the WHO has been telling us forever to do outside of pandemics in order to protect ourselves better against them. Hmm. Tell me if I'm being too Pollyannish, but in times like this, Is there something that can help us maintain a positive and hopeful outlook on life? I mean, I guess I'm looking for words of wisdom for our listeners. Mm. Um, The ancient lesson, I guess, is that we survive. We do survive, and we we know the shape of a pandemic curve, an epidemic curve. We'll definitely come out of this. We'll just be a different humanity. Um, And, you know... Lots of us who are here now may not be here then. I mean, I think that pandemics bring out the very worst and the very best in human nature, both the extremes, you know. I mean, so virology was not a field of science before the 1918 pandemic. It took off with the 1920s. We had our first flu vaccines as a result from the 1930s. You know, good things come out, but a lot of people pay the price for it. That's Laura Spinney. She's a science journalist and author. Her book is called Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. We spoke to her earlier this year. On the show today, Making Sense of 2020. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and today on the show, 
ideas that helped us make sense of 2020, which also included some big debates over what we're willing to do to protect ourselves and our neighbors. Here in the U.S., there's been a lot of tension over measures to curb the virus, like wearing masks. But in places like China, government-enforced mandates went a lot further, like separating family members for quarantine and tracking citizens' every move through QR code scans. I told that to my American friends. They're like, oh, my God, how can you live with that? That so infringes on everything that we believe in, in individual rights and so on and so forth. This is Huang Hung. She's been called the Oprah Winfrey of China. I'm a writer. I'm a columnist in China. I, uh, most of my writing are in Chinese. However, I am actually a U.S. citizen. And I've been living in China since 1991, so for quite some time. So, you know, I walk into a shopping mall, and I have to say, I'm glad I feel safer that there is a scanning system. It is for the greater good. The Chinese kind of realize in time of crisis, it is necessary to bound together. And whatever inconvenience happens, um, you need to be able to tolerate it. You need to be patient. You need to work with other people. You need to support the collective rather than just think for yourself. Mm. I mean, I guess I'm wondering whether this idea of collectivism to benefit the population as a whole is even possible without infringing too much on people's civil liberties. Can it be done in a place like the U.S.? Or or are the U.S. and China just too different? I think one of the things I do want to point out is that the Chinese have always had a ruler, a, an emperor. Hmm. So for the Chinese, it's not strange to have a one-party rule. It's not strange not to have elections because for 5,000 years, they have never had an election. Mm. But it is ironic for me that you take China where the government is not elected. But during the pandemic, everybody will do what the government wants them to do. Be it lockdown, be it testing temperatures, Whereby in the West, you have elected governments. These governments are actually voted in by the people. But anything that the government say, that the people will not listen to. And I find that to be something very ironic. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yes, it is fascinating. You know, what does this say about how a authoritarian government, when it carries on for 5,000 years, can shape a certain culture of conformity. And is that conformity necessarily bad? Hmm. There are those who say that despite this uh, concept of collective good, that the Chinese government did not act quick enough quickly enough to contain the virus and that deaths 
were unreported or undercounted, that there was a, 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 an attempt to protect the government from outside eyes from seeing that they did not act quickly enough. It sounds like there's a tension between what the people trust their government to do and what the Chinese government actually does to uh, protect its leaders. I think there's a strange misunderstanding that the Chinese government does not communicate to its people and it does not bend to the will of its people. So this, I have to say, is not quite true because the Chinese government is actually quite aware of public opinion. So when confronted with massive amount of complaint and protest on social media, Mm -hmm. the government has the ability to change its decision. And we've seen that during the pandemic when the government changed its verdict on Dr. Li. Mm. So you're referring to this Dr. Li Wenliang, who first sounded the alarm about coronavirus in China. Yes. And the government initially condemned him as a whistleblower and tried to censor the news of the outbreak. But they later changed their narrative and celebrated him as a hero after he died of COVID-19. Yes. And this, the Chinese government does, not because it wants to change its mind, but because it realized on the night of the death of Dr. Lee that it had to do it. So the government actually does react to public opinion. Yeah, but doesn't it seem like there's this really thin line between whether the government is simply listening to the people or if it's actually trying to save face in light of a major blunder after overreaching and censoring too much? It's the same thing. But in either way, what it is, is a government reacting to public opinion. Huh. You know, I guess what I'm also thinking of are the instances where people tried to express dissent and were silenced and punished. For example, our own uh, Emily Fang, NPR's Emily Fang, has reported on how Wuhan residents were threatened by the police and silenced after they tried to sue the Chinese government for the way things were handled there. Lawyers were told to stop their pro bono work on these cases. Um, and, and so when people are silenced and fear-stricken in this way, you can't really make a generalization that the Chinese population is happy with the government's course of action, right? I agree. I agree. I agree that these incidences are very worrisome and there are huge holes in the Chinese justice system, in the way that the Chinese local police actually carry out justice and um, enforces um, justice. Um, And these are problems that exist in Chinese society. There is no way to deny that. And yet, I think it comes back to this idea that you have talked about, which has no translation into the English language. So I wonder if you can explain it to us and if you think that is the reason why people are are willing to accept some changes. This The word is guai? Did I yes. say it correctly? Yes, yes. I think the Chinese are taught to think for greater goods ever since we were born. You need to get good grades, not necessarily for your own benefit, but because you don't want to lose face for your parents, for your family. Mm. And so 
The collective thinking is very buried deep down. You really are facing a different creature in terms of a nation and in terms of a race and a people. First of all, China has been homogenized. I mean, it's like ninety percent of the population is Han. So, all I'm saying is that the Chinese government is terribly lucky that they get to rule a people which actually has a culture of collective thinking.、Hmm. They have an easier job than Western politicians. Let's put it that way.、Hmm. Yeah, but. Do you think there could be a middle ground to be found between that collectivist sentiment that you described, but without the extreme measures to enforce it? I think there has to be a middle ground, I, and I think this is why U.S.-China relationship is so important that it's not a breakdown, because that middle ground is somewhere between the Western world and the Chinese world. We're all together in the same problem, so it's about the human race either moving on to a higher platform where we recognize our collective good as a human race, or we actually die fighting whose system is better. So. From that point of view, I do think that the West has a lesson to learn in terms of collective thinking. That's Wang Hong. She's an author, television host, and media mogul. I spoke to her in May of this year. You can hear more of her thoughts from this year's virtual TED conference at TED.com. On the show today, the people who helped us make sense of 2020. And back when we were first learning about COVID nineteen and the virus that causes it, the immediate question was, where did it come from? What was the source? Well, scientists are hunting for the origins of this novel coronavirus as it continues. Attention immediately turned to bats. So far, experts suspect that bats could be the likely hosts. This new coronavirus likely came from bats. And actually, bats have been patient zero for a lot of viral outbreaks. Ebola virus, Nipah virus, Hendra virus, SARS, and likely this new coronavirus, SARS two. This is ecologist Daniel Stryker. He studies animal-borne diseases. It's maybe not unexpected that bats have that number of viruses, just given the number of bat species that there are. In the world, there's over 1,500 species, so it kind of makes sense that they should have some virus that jump into people. Daniel studies how viruses travel from animals to humans, specifically from bats to people. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's a, a intense interest in, in knowing whether there is something about the immune system of bats, or even like the life history or ecology of bats, which somehow makes viruses that, if they're in people, become more pathogenic. Daniel started focusing on bats back in 2006. He tells his story from the TED Med stage, and that was when I first heard about an outbreak of mysterious illness that was happening in the Amazon rainforest of Peru. The people that were getting sick from this illness they had horrifying symptoms, nightmarish. The most tragic part of all was that many of the victims were children, and of all of those that got sick, none survived. It turned out that what was killing these people was a virus, but it wasn't Ebola, it wasn't Zika. 
It wasn't even some new virus never before seen by science. They were dying of rabies. And what all of them had in common was that as they slept, they had been bitten by the only mammal that lives exclusively on a diet of blood: the vampire bat. I mean, when I hear hear that, that is absolutely terrifying. I mean, what was your reaction when you first heard about this? What did you think? Um, it did surprise me in the sense that I, I knew that vampire bat rabies was a thing that happened in the Amazon, but at that point, I didn't think of it as a disease that can enter into a community and then kill. 10 or 20 children within the course of about a month. So that really changed my thinking on it and, and made me realize there's something going on here, and that was what I wanted to work out. So I jumped onto a plane and flew off to Peru, looking for vampire bats. You see, all we had to do was show up at a village and ask around, "Who's been getting bitten by a bat lately?" And people raised their hands because. In these communities, getting bitten by a bat is an everyday occurrence.、It、happens every day, and so all we had to do was go to the right house, open up a net, and show up at night and wait until the bats tried to fly in and feed on human blood. Wait, okay, so wait, bats just fly in when people are sleeping and and feed on them? Like people don't feel them? Right. So the way that people get bitten is is literally as as horrifying as it sounds. It's it's bats entering their houses in the night. And biting them,、uh, usually bites are on the head or the toes, and their saliva has anticoagulants in it, so the blood just continues to flow. And so they're not really sucking blood, rather just lapping it up as it flows out of the people that they've bitten.、Ugh. And it's it's quite shocking, but you can ask people, and they never seem to wake up when this happens. Wow. And partly it's that the bats seem quite good at picking out people that are really deep in sleep. And they probably do that by、uh, listening to breathing patterns, so they can work out who's really well asleep,、huh. and then sneak up to them in a very stealthy way, make a small wound which doesn't cause too much pain, and then just lap up the blood. They are supremely well adapted to a lifestyle of feeding on blood. Since we were working all night long, I had plenty of time to think about how I might actually solve this problem. If we could somehow anticipate when and where the next outbreak would be, that would be a real opportunity. I mean, we could vaccinate people ahead of time before anybody starts dying. But vaccination is really just a band-aid. At the end of the day, no matter how many people we vaccinate, we're still going to have exactly the same amount of rabies up there in the bats. But if we could somehow reduce the amount of rabies in the bats themselves, then that would be a real game changer. So, step one, Daniel started tracking the bats. Rabies survives when it moves from one animal to another, and using genetic testing and tracking the bat's mating patterns, Daniel and his team could kind of forecast where the rabies would go next. When the juvenile males come to maturity, they have to leave the maternal roost, the roost where they were born, and so when they do that, some of them are taking rabies with them. By looking at the genetic structure of the bats, we can get some idea of where the virus is going to spread into the future. And that's when Daniel found something surprising. Until this point, scientists thought the Andes Mountains blocked rabies from moving from one side of the country to the other. The Andes are really tall, about twenty-two thousand feet, and that's way too high for a vampire to fly. Yet, <laughs> when we looked a little bit more closely, we saw in the northern part of Peru a network of valley systems that was not quite too tall for the bats on either side to be mating with each other. We were actually witnessing in real time. A historical first invasion into a pretty big part of South America, which raises the key question: well, What are we going to do about that? 
And which brings us to step two of Daniel's plan. Vaccinate the bats. So in this case, we have an oral vaccine which is embedded into a gel. And you spread that on to one or more bats and you release them. Then the other bats will lick the first bat that you put your vaccine on. And when they consume the vaccine, they get protected against the disease. And so this is potentially a way to spread your vaccine to a much larger number of individuals than you actually had to go out and catch manually. Now we have a whole laundry list of questions. How many bats do we need to vaccinate? What time of the year do we need to be vaccinating? How many times a year do we need to be vaccinating? They're questions that we can't answer in the laboratory. So instead, we're taking a slightly more colorful approach. We're using real wild bats, but fake vaccines. We use edible gels that make bat hair glow, and that's letting us study how well a real vaccine might spread in these wild colonies of bats. Our results so far are incredibly encouraging. They're suggesting that using the vaccines that we already have, we could potentially drastically reduce the size of rabies outbreaks. I mean, that would be incredible. And of course, like where my mind goes is, would it even be possible to do this with viruses like Ebola or SARS or COVID-19? Or am I just being wildly optimistic here? Yeah, so the challenge with some of these other viruses is that we don't always know with great certainty where they're coming from. Mm. So we might know that it's a bat virus, but we might not know which bat, or there might actually be multiple bats that are involved in circulating those viruses in the wild. The other thing that we, you have to think about in terms of applying ideas like transmissible vaccines is really, is that the right strategy given the disease that you're dealing with? If the introduction from the source is so rare and so unpredictable, then it might be that the best thing that you can do is advise general measures to reduce contacts between bats and humans or use reactive measures. So after the virus emerges, then deal with it as we're currently doing for COVID-19. That's ecologist Daniel Stryker. His research focuses on animal-borne diseases. I spoke to him back in March, and you can see his entire talk at tedmed.com. On the show today, looking back on big ideas from 2020. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices, and they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. And today on the show, conversations that helped us make sense of 2020. And last winter, before we'd even begun to think about lockdowns and quarantines and social distancing, I read a great book. Actually, a graphic novel. 
A spaceship appears, seemingly out of nowhere, carrying the night sky with it. Out of the spaceship topples a gaggle of aliens, all looking exactly the same. It was about a little alien called Jomni. Except one particular alien who looks slightly the same but also exactly different from all the other aliens. This is writer Johnny Sun reading from his book, Everyone's an Alien, When You Are an Alien Too. So you're leaving me here all alone? Asks the slightly different alien. Well, we will check on you in case you mess anything up, says the fifth alien in response. Okay, says the slightly different alien, not reassured by that response at all. In the story, Jomni is sent to Earth to study its creatures, and he feels afraid and lost. Eventually, Jomni goes from searching for the receding spaceship among the stars to simply watching the stars themselves. Jomni looks down at the ground, at the Earth. I feel alone, the alien says. So Jomni begins to explore, and he meets all sorts of Earth creatures, and yet he still feels empty and invisible. Friend. F-R-I-E-N-D. Friend. The bees and the flying caterpillar all fly away together, into the sky where Jomni cannot follow. I wish I had friends, Jomni says out loud. This might sound like a kid's book, but it's actually a book for grown-ups too. Because Jomni's deep loneliness, well, it's something we all can relate to, especially this year. Yeah, so Jomni is a character I created um, sort of out of a moment of intense loneliness in my own life. Um, I had started uh, my PhD at MIT and was was feeling very much like an alien and an outsider in this new place and in this new community. And I think the way I responded was sort of withdrawing and was to find more and more solitude, which I think sometimes is great, but I think it also, the combination of factors also led to an immense loneliness. Do you remember what that felt like? Like, is it very clear in your mind? Yeah, I think sometimes when you're experiencing loneliness, you feel like you are you are on this alien planet and you are on this sort of, in this world that doesn't feel like anything you have known or you're familiar with. And I think one of the things that I'm always fascinated and try to interrogate about my own loneliness is how it feels like like this immensity of nothingness um, can feel suffocating and can feel like there's so much weight on you at all times. Like I, I remember reading about planets where the gravity is different. Um, everything is pushing in on you and you can't look at it, but somehow all this sort of empty space around you is the thing that's that's causing all that that weight but i had a lifeline of sorts here's johnny's son on the ted stage i was writing jokes for years and years and sharing them on social media and i found that i was turning to doing this more and more now for many people the internet can feel like a lonely place it can feel like this a big endless expansive void where you can constantly call out to it, but no one's ever listening. But I actually found a comfort in speaking out to the void. I found in sharing my feelings with the void, eventually the void started to speak back. And it turns out that the void isn't this endless, lonely expanse at all, but instead it's full of all sorts of other people, also staring out into it and also wanting to be heard. Now, when someone shares that they feel sad or afraid or alone, for example, it actually makes me feel less alone, not by 
getting rid of any of my loneliness, but by showing me that I am not alone in feeling lonely. And as a writer and as an artist, I care very much about making this comfort of being vulnerable a communal thing, something that we can share with each other. I'm excited about externalizing the internal, about taking those invisible, personal feelings that I don't have words for, holding them to the light, putting words to them, and then sharing them with other people in the hopes that it might help them find words to find their feelings as well. For example, a few months ago, I posted this app idea for a dog walking service where a dog shows up at your door and you have to get out of the house and go for a walk. <laughs> If there are app developers in the audience, please find me after the talk. Um, or I like to share every time I feel anxious about sending an email. When I sign my emails best, it's short for I am trying my best, which is short for please don't hate me, I promise I'm trying my best. Or my answer to the classic icebreaker, if I could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, I would. I am very lonely. <laughs> And I find that when I post things like these online, the reaction is very similar. People come together to share a laugh. Um, to share in that feeling, and then to disperse just as quickly. Uh, but, yes, <laughs> leaving me once again alone. <laughs> um, but I think sometimes these little gatherings can be quite meaningful. For example, when I graduated from architecture school and I moved to Cambridge, I posted this question. How many people in your life have you already had your last conversation with? And I was thinking about my own friends who had moved away to different cities and different countries even, and how hard it would be for me to keep in touch with them. But other people started replying and sharing their own experiences. Somebody talked about a family member they had a falling out with. Someone talked about a loved one who had passed away quickly and unexpectedly. Someone else talked about their friends from school who had moved away as well. And eventually, we got this little tiny micro-community. It felt like this support group formed of all sorts of people coming together. And I think every time we post online, every time we do this, there's a chance that these little micro-communities can form. There's a chance that all sorts of different creatures can come together and be drawn together. And sometimes, through the muck of the internet, you get to find a kindred spirit. Sometimes, if you're lucky, you get to meet another alien. A few years ago, when Johnny Sun decided to open up on social media and share how lonely he was, it struck a chord. He got 600,000 Twitter followers. But more importantly, he ended up building a community. At some point, I started tweeting about like going to therapy and talking to my therapist. And it was something that, um, for me, I think I'd, I'd never thought that therapy was like an option for me in a way hmm. um, and then it was actually in at MIT that I started seeing a therapist um, but one of the most meaningful like the most meaningful types of messages I get on Twitter are when I remember getting one tweet in particular that was someone who said I grew up never knowing that therapy was an option for me and I was terrified of of reaching out and trying to get help and trying to go see a therapist, um, but seeing you tweet about um, your experiences kind of led me to, to think that it might help me. And so I booked my first therapy appointment. Stuff like that makes me, it makes me acknowledge how the stuff that you put online and the stuff that you put anywhere um, can have like these immense 
impacts on people's lives. Mm. When you start to realize there are people that share the same space as you, there's sort of like that that natural connection. And and it sounds like you took that connection combined mm-hmm. with therapy and you really found a way forward out of the loneliness. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to it's always I feel like it's always hard to to say like, oh, I like I I solved it. I cured it. I defeated it. <laughs> no um, more lonely. Yeah, exactly, cuz I think it's I think that sort of thing is my belief is that loneliness is like an intrinsic human state and it's always going to be there. Um but for me, I think the the help is being able to understand how to process it and understand like the healthy ways that I can approach it as opposed to I think that if you start getting into those thoughts of like how do I cure loneliness and how do I kind of defeat it um, when it inevitably comes back it's even more crushing and I think I've had those thought processes and I've been like wow I'll never feel lonely again and then when it comes back you're like oh no now everything I've done is a lie I'm feeling lonely again (laughs) We're gone. <laughs> no, so it's yeah. like making peace with it so that when lonely does show up, you're like, oh, hey, you, it's been a yeah, while. Exactly. And it's like, oh, I understand this feeling. I know I sort of am more aware of my way around it. I know sort of how I can talk about it. And I have people that I can share those feelings with. And I think like one of the big sort of like lies that loneliness tells you when it visits you is to say like you're the only person in the world who's feeling this way and everyone else will think you are strange and weird for feeling this way so never tell anyone about it sometimes that lie is like the hardest thing to fight against um but i think as 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 you can work to break out of that mentality i think it it can help when I was feeling particularly sad and hopeless about the world, I shouted out to the void, to the lonely darkness. I said, at this point, logging onto social media feels like holding someone's hand at the end of the world. And this time, instead of the void responding, it was people who showed up, who started replying to me and then who started talking to each other. And slowly, this little, tiny community formed. Everybody came together to hold hands. And so, yes, even though life is bad and everyone's sad and one day we're all going to die, in the midst of it all, in these dangerous and unsure times, I think the thing that we have to hold on to is other people. Behind Jomni, all the animals and creatures of Earth gather closer together under the bright twinkling starry sky, talking to each other, hugging laughing. Jomni turns around to have one last look at all the earth creatures and is filled with happiness. Goodbye, Jomni whispers quietly. The spaceship takes off and Jomni goes home, leaving behind the only place that the alien ever truly belonged. That's writer and artist Johnny Sun. His book is called Everyone's an Alien When You're an Alien Too. I spoke to him in January of this year, and you can find his full talk at TED.com. Before we go, there's one last idea I want to share with you, and one good thing that may have been sparked in 2020, which is more appreciation for the little things in life. So many people have had to face serious hardships, 
put their dreams on hold, and simply be grateful to get through to tomorrow. Personally, I'm so grateful to you for welcoming me into your ears this year as the host of the TED Radio Hour, especially since the team and I had to figure out how to make the show away from the NPR studios and in closets and bedrooms across the country. And so go with me here. I'd like to close this episode this year with a reflection with Jaisui Mata, a monk and spiritual teacher. She gave a talk about how changing the purpose of her own life led her to a profound understanding, the power of just being thankful. During the peak of coronavirus pandemic in Sri Lanka, that is mid-2020, I came up with a surprising way to fill my life with bliss and grace. A magical mantra was nurturing in the garden of my mind. It felt like all good thoughts that I have planted in my mind has begun to blossom into something beautiful. This magical mantra was like a magic pill for all perceived suffering, which not only affected my life, but everyone else connected to me. 38 years of my life, I went on a self-seeking journey, finding who am I. I went through a conscious dying process, letting go of everything attached to my name. Well-established career as a coach, a charity consultant, hypnotherapist, energy healer, intimate relationships, attachment to family, 12 years of well-established business. So what was this magical mantra that transformed my life for better? Thank you were the two simple words that filled the space between my ears like a music in my head. This was experienced profoundly during the pandemic, as everyone connected to me was filled with fear and doubt and anxiety, and I had to do something different. The first thought came to my mind first thing in the morning as I woke up was thank you. And the last thought occupied my mind when I went to sleep at night was thank you. I was thinking thank you when I ate, when I drank, when I worked, when I walked, sat silently when I consumed every man-made material. It was like a music in my mind. Sometimes I said the word thank you loudly, even to inanimate objects, like sun and the moon and the stars, birds, butterflies, trees, little creatures in the garden, as if I was greeting them. When you say thank you, it creates a harmony between you and the external condition under observation. It helps you to bring your attention inwards. It may be initially just a word running in your head without a true feeling of gratitude in your heart. A word is a sound, and a sound is a vibration, and vibration creates energy. So when you keep thinking, thank you, after a while, that energy starts penetrating into your heart center and the rest of the body. We cannot do much about troubled times and conditions in life, 
but we certainly can do something to calm ourselves during troubled times. Human mind is like water. If it gets affected by external conditions, it creates movement and you cannot see the depth. This magical mantra thank you and the true feeling of gratitude in your heart can help you deal with any life situation peacefully, joyfully and blissfully. May all beings be well, happy, free from all suffering and be enlightened. Thank you. Thank you as always for listening to our show. Wishing you a peaceful end to this tumultuous year. To learn more about the people who were on this episode, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out TED.com or the TED app. Our TED Radio production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motisham, James Delahousi, J.C. Howard, Katie Monteleone, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Christina Kala, Matthew Cloutier, and Farah Safari, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our theme music was written by Ramteen Arablui. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food. From employee meal plans to on-site staffing to concierge ordering support. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.